that the works be removed completely and not even shown somewhere else. I also felt very strongly that it was really important and that it wasn't a decision for me to make. Um, it was a decision for Stephen to make, although he was very aware of everything that was happening around that situation. I was talking to him. Stephen's also from South Carolina, so he happened to be down in South Carolina that weekend with family, getting ready to watch the eclipse. There is definitely some irony in that as the works that are in question uh, relate to the Nat Turner slave revolt and insurrection, which Nat had his epiphany during a solar eclipse, so kind of again came full circle there with everything. Um, so ultimately, I let Stephen make the decision on what he wanted to do, and this was his solution, which I believe was a very smart and good solution. It enabled the conversation to keep going, even though the works had been pulled down. So I guess just to tie a neat bow on that, um, Stephen had the agency and made the decision to take his artwork down. I know there was some questions or controversy about whether the administration had taken it down without permission or all that things of that nature. So I want to just introduce the group of people that we've kind of assembled to pitch into this conversation. So going from left to right, I'm going to allow you all to introduce yourself. Well, I'm Graham King Wilmot. I'm in the uh, Center for Art and Media. Uh, so my background is in visual culture and visual studies, so I'm working at the intersection of art, media, and race. So I usually look at stuff like black science fiction, um, which in many ways actually begins to resonate as I look at these paintings. These seem like a kind of an original story of black science fiction, the idea of taking people, putting them ships, in, in ships and taking them to some kind of new world, these sort of aliens in some ways. Um, it seems like this sort of original, surreal, unimaginable story, um, but it doesn't get more real than that kind of history for us to think about. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm Niyashi Brandon Simpson. I'm in psychology. My area of interest is primarily black cultural practices and positive psych. I think for the purposes of this conversation, I'm also really interested in ethical decision making. My name is Ayla Chopper, and I'm in peace studies and creative writing, and I'm a poet and a writer. And um, my clinical work uh, deals with um, the rhetorical practices of power and uh, narratives of possibility. And I'm interested in the ways that power has um, had conversations or conversations through us and what else is possible. I'm Zoe Carlton. I'm faculty at American University and fellow artist, friend of Stephen. And uh, my interest in this conversation in the role of the institution and how the institution makes decisions and helps shape decisions and makes decisions for even students and what they can see and what they can learn, what you guys can learn, and the experiences that you ultimately have. Um, good afternoon, my name is Mertie Spadola. I am the owner and founding director of Gallery Mertise in Baltimore, Maryland, a curator and art advisor. I had the privilege of hosting uh, Stephen's entire full body of work on the Nat Turner series. And um, I'm looking forward to this discussion as someone who had the freedom and believes in the artist's right and ability to express what their concerns are. And I'm Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> At this moment, I'd like to give Stephen uh, 10 minutes to do a short artist talk. So we need to get the light because there is a projection here. 
So um, again, my name is Stephen Towns. Um, I'm originally from Charleston, South Carolina. Has anybody been to Charleston, South Carolina? If you have, raise your hand. To your description of Charleston. No. Does anybody have a description of Charleston? Romantically eerie. Romantically <laughs> eerie. One, one more. Really segregated. Segregated. So, segregated. So I, I, since I lived there, I didn't really pay attention to that at the time. All I knew were these beautiful, idyllic landscapes like this one here. This is downtown. So this is what I was surrounded by. And this is the slave park. So there are all these beautiful sites. Uh, it's a beautiful landscape, but like uh, someone said, it's beautifully eerie. Um, and so I was trying to figure out how to address that in my work in college. And I wasn't really sort of, I didn't feel I had the agency to do that until I found this book. Um, it's a book called The Middle Passage by Tom Feeling. And he's an artist that I felt like he could tell these beautiful, uh, he could show these beautiful images of this eerie history, our American history. I just have a couple here. And so here was this black artist who was doing this wonderful, uh, wonderful images, beautiful um, imagery of, of a really uh, tough, tough, tough story. And so in my early work, I had done that myself. I sort of mimicked what he did. I created these images about slavery and lynching and all these things. Um, but after I graduated and I tried to get into the whole gallery system and introduce my work to people, I kept getting the criticism that my work was just too dark. I couldn't. Nobody's going to be interested in this. You can't sell this work. You can't show this work just because it's too dark. And interestingly, in Charleston, like a lot of the images that I saw were just like of happy slaves sewing and tilling in the field. Um, and so I got a lot of rejection for that. And I was like, I can't tell this story anymore. I can't do these uh, sort of leery images. And so I s adopted portraiture, um, similar to the work that you see right here. And um, I would still um, look into American history, but I would tell these stories uh, through these portraits. And so sometimes the story is not a direct story, but it's, it's hidden in the painting. It's sort of the, the eye of the portraiter, of, of the sitter. They sort of tell you these stories through their eyes. Um, so not everything is well told. And um, it wasn't until about a couple years ago, maybe five years ago, that I felt like I had to address these things because um, Trayvon Martin, like we had been hearing these stories about violence all the time, and it was like, it's my time to finally tell this story again. And I told it through the story of Nat Turner. This is anybody familiar with Turner's story? <coughs> so in 1831, Turner led a slave rebellion. About 50 to 60 white people were killed and over 200 black people were killed in retaliation. And this is one of the events, sort of a, a primal event that led up to the Civil War, because at this time, people knew that there was going to be an uprising at some time. There was sort of like this, like we are experiencing tension now with the current administration, and we feel like, oh, something is going to happen. Like at that same time period, people had that same story. And we hear the stories of fake news now. There were like these stories that were going around that slaves were planning a revolt. And somebody actually did, and Turner did. So I wanted to tell this story, um, uh, this very violent story, through sort of 
some violent Im imagery, but a lot of nonviolent imagery. And so one of the first things that I addressed was just the idea of child enslavement. Um, I, I think about just like being in this space, being in America, being um, who I am, um, and there are times that I just want to escape. And I thought about these children who are in this environment and who just want to escape. And so the only way to escape sometimes is through daydreaming and through the stars. So that's why you see images of stars in these children's heads. These were um, faces that I sourced from images of enslaved children. And can we get the other light in here? Does that work? I think it's all or nothing. Okay. And so this is me in my studio. The, I start at the beginning and then I go to the end. There are um, two, over 200 black people that are killed in retaliation for the Turner Rebellion. And um, the, I was thinking about these people who were killed in retaliation um, and some who were actually in the revolt. And these people, they made a decision. They made a decision to lead a revolt because they didn't like slavery. They wanted America to change. And so I use the idea of making decisions and being powerful to create the images that um, were not in this space here. And this, this series is called Find Me a Constellation. So you see these figures with these golden noose, and if you sort of close your eyes, it's a raised fist. And um, the sitters were all my friends. So it was interesting um, creating the, taking these photographs of them with these ropes around their necks and us having this conversation about these people and how we are the benefactors of the choices that these people made. And so it was also important for me to tell the story of, uh, of, of Turner. And I told the story of Turner through quilts. Turner, this is my, one of my first images called Birth of a Nation. This is sort of like the very foundation. Um, black women, they literally fed our forefathers. Sometimes they had to abandon their own children to take care of the master's children. And so in this particular piece, I'm paying homage to the history of black women in America and all that they have contributed. And then I go into the story of Turner. He learned to read at a very young age. Um, his master encouraged him to read. He read the Bible, and this is him reading to his grandmother. It's called Special Child. He preached to other slaves. He was known as the prophet. He planned the rebellion at Cabin Pond. He and a group of six men. They led the revolt, going from house to house, killing um, every man, woman, and child. And if you've read the Bible and you know the story of the Exodus, that's the instructions that God had given the Israelites. Leave no man, woman, child unturned. And this final image is the image of Turner right before he's lynched. 
And so like one of the last final series that I worked on was talking about religion and how religion plays a role um, in American life, both to enslave people and to give people freedom. The way you enslave someone by Christian religion is to make them think that the only way that they can escape what they have here in life is through death. Um, but the way you free somebody from religion, uh, free somebody through religion, especially uh, specifically Christianity, was through the stories of the prophets um, and um, helping people to realize that they have their own internal power within them. And so in these particular pieces, I'm using Turner and his wife Cherry, and they're performing magic tricks. And through magic tricks, they are escaping slavery through the magic of religion and Christianity. Rabbit out of the hat. The dove, sleight of hands, breaking chains, child, card tricks. And with this particular piece, um, I was thinking of a husband and wife. And what happens when you realize that your partner is making a decision that they may not necessarily survive from, but it's a decision that they have to make and you know that it may be for the better good. So there's like the severing of the relationship. And this is the final piece. And so I've been going through uh, making this work about violent images, uh, about a violent time, and, and through violent um, and nonviolent imagery, and um, some violent imagery. Um, and the thing that sort of um, really is uh, that I came to is like everything is complicated. Um, violence doesn't always happen with a knife. Violence doesn't always happen with a gun. I know we just experienced a mass shooting, but think about the violent reactions um, and the interactions that you have with people every day. And how do you respond to them? Um, and so I continue to look at that and question my work, is how do we respond through violence? With how do we respond to violence, with that violence and without violence? And so that's me. Thank you, Stephen. I know many people in the crowd weren't here for your um, artist talks. I wanted to make sure folks had the opportunity to hear from you. Um, this moment, I have essentially posed a question. I asked each member of the panel to come up with a question for directed at either an individual member of the panel or a member of the community or an open question to be answered. So, Martise, you're up. Okay, so my question um, is centered around Find Me a Constellation. The Do you mind reintroducing yourself to oh, the new people? That I'm sorry, about? yes. Uh, again, I'm Mertise Bedoya. I'm the owner and founding director of Gallery Mertise, and I had the privilege of exhibiting uh, Take Me Away to the Stars, uh, the entire body of works that uh, Stephen created around the Nat Turner Revolt. And um, so in the body of work that was removed, take, uh, Find Me a Constellation, um, Stephen Towns explored the moral legitimacy and political efficacy of violent protest by blacks in their fight for freedom and equality. The revolt led by Nat Turner was the lens through which Towns examined the enslavement of blacks 
and their fight for liberation. Goucher's administration's choice to remove Towns' work at the request of an employee who claimed the imagery uh, was disturbing. So my question to the panel is, do you believe we've reached a period of political correctness on college campuses where freedom of expression is being trumped by protesters, uh, permitting and encouraging them to voice concerns about whatever personally offends them, and as a result, the institution is held accountable? Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so. Can you go ahead and read? I, I am Zoe Charlton from American University. I think this question of political correctness really um, confuses me because I wonder what political correctness actually is these days, right? Um, are we overly careful? But what I think it's done in institutions is ushered in a level of conservatism. And, um, and also a kind of a conservatism in the way that uh, uh, procedures and policies are, are um, executed. And also, it's, it's made institutions have this knee-jerk reaction that there's no opportunity to slow down and to think about the impact of the things that we're seeing and the things that we're talking about. And so um, it's, it's are institutions more politically correct? No, I think that they're very conservative, right? And um, and I find that very troubling. I like how you bring up the um, Ailish Hopper. I teach in peace studies and creative writing. Um, the okay, thanks. Um, the mentioning the time frame and how um, and the conservatism and also uh, an emphasis on kind of efficiency. And all those things are sort of at another end of the spectrum from relationship and complexity and challenge and yeah. ambiguity, which is what the gift that art brings us, mm -hmm. you know? And so, um, and I can't, that question also reminds me of when Charles Murray was supposed to speak at Dartmouth and so we have the kind of other end of the spectrum in terms of how we think of this in literal political terms. You know, some people find him to be a eugenicist. Um, but how do we have difficult conversations together? You need to do a different kind of work from efficiency, mm -hmm. a different kind of work from shut it down, conservatism, mm -hmm. simplicity. I mean, it's a whole other kind of side of the brain and skill set, and it is a skill set that we are not empowering and training ourselves to have, and definitely in institutions of all kinds, that's, that's the case. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, it is a different kind of uh, way of thinking for sure, um, and we talk about um, critical thinking in our classrooms and we do that between ourselves but when it comes to um, possible controversy that kind of skill set goes out the window right hmm. yeah. I just want to remind the panel there's some just sort of background noise back here and I think oh. the carpet deadens sound Thank so you. it's not Traveling. There's plenty of okay. open seats Thank if you'd you. like to come in closer <laughs> and be part of the community. That would be awesome. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just wondering if I could ask a clarifying question. Sure. 
Um, so I often hear the term political correctness used in opposition to whatever once political stances that you're complaining about political correctness. Um, and for me, I often think that understanding the term and use of political correctness needs, requires thinking about who holds power. So I'm wondering how you're defining political correctness in this instance. Yes, I'm definitely um, phrasing it in the, in the, the term in which, or the manner in which Goucher handled the situation. That being, they were empowered to, uh, I know that Stephen made the final decision to remove the work, but I question what were the policies in place that could have protected him for even having to conclude, come to that conclusion. Why is it that um, an employee, or anyone who have, would have had concerns about the imagery, why isn't why weren't there other measures in place that would allow the removal of the work to have been prevented? So was a decision and kind of maybe even the pressure, I don't know, I'm not sitting, I wasn't in Stephen's position, so I don't know what the full dynamics were behind that, but it really concerns me that um, he was put in a position where he even had to contemplate having to make that decision. And um, was it a way of the school uh, trying to avoid controversy, uh, being called out and or afraid that they would have to um, somehow deal with the backlash of having this, uh, having the images in place. So how is the artist's uh, creativity protected? How are, is, uh, you know, just his creative genius, why wasn't that given greater consideration or equal consideration in this? And, and handled very differently. So I, it really concerns me and disturbs me that this is the result of someone's complaint, that it wasn't handled differently. To add into this conversation, I, I think one of the frustrating things for me as I walk through the space with different groups of people or, or uh, friends that is there's a certain opacity to um, some of how the decision was made uh, or got made. So right now, as I walk through the gallery, I think, oh, well, it looks like Stephen just made this decision. And, and in a way, Stephen's having to own this decision. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm sure that that wasn't necessarily the full case. Um, but it's just hard on the sort of surface to sort of understand how the situation sort of unfolded and what the dynamics yes. actually were. So to kind of put this in some historical perspective, in the 90s, a very similar incident happened at RISD with Carrie Mae Weems, one of her early shows. And at that point in time, the, um, the whole... Uh, custodial staff threatened to quit um, and once they found out more about the show um, one of them still quit and the rest of them still continued to work at the university but there was a statement a very concerted effort by the university to come out and sort of stake a claim in this fight and to actually make a statement and, and right now there's still a certain op opaqueness that um, I'm still not exactly clear on here yeah. so. and, I think, sorry. <clears throat> and so I myself work at an institution I am an administrator at an institution I think the other thing to consider is the environment of an institution and the history of an institution. So when I go to any college or university, even my own, it's always the black and brown people that are the cleaning people mm -hmm. and the sa and safety. Uh, um, and then it's white people usually that are in higher administrative positions um, and that are the teachers. And so 
in this world, even in the place that I work at, there's always this weird dynamic that I'm almost like on the plantation and I'm trying to figure out how I navigate that myself. So I feel, I feel weird when I show my work and might show my work in spaces and the idea of being an artist like that, that there's a, it's so complicated. Um, and so like the work coming here in a very white separate part of Baltimore where people have come to escape and it's a college um, and, the, and the whole idea of the institution of college like I the reason why I decided oh the work just just remove the work is because I am an employee at an institution I understand like their perspective um, and then at the same time I'm an artist and it feels like really shitty that I have to like take down this work um, because these conversations have to be had um, and they don't necessarily have to be had with black people because we always have these conversations. <laughs> like, this is like my everyday existence. Um, but for the non-black people, like these are the conversations that you have to have um, about your history and your part in your history. So you can never divorce yourself from your history because this all belongs to us. Mm -hmm. This, the lynching, it all belongs to us. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, can I? Can I? There was a question back let me, there. Let me go ahead and take one question, and I want to I want to actually pivot to Niasha's question because mm -hmm. I think we're at a great point to do I that. I just wanted to interject another way of thinking about it. I know oftentimes we look at the art as performing the thing, right? So if we have the opportunity to witness the artist's perspective through the work that they produce, then we're able to engage in conversation around the perspective of the artist. But what if we flip the lens and realize, or contemplated had you not brought that work to begin with, would we be here right now having the conversation? That the idea that we had to take the art off the wall opened up the space for us to have a conversation around why the work existed in a way that if you had not brought the work to begin with, this wouldn't have happened. This wouldn't happen. And that also being what art is about, right? Yes. Not only the, the product of art, but the process around producing it, showing it, and audiencing that work also is the work performing as well. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted, I wanted to pass the floor to Niasha because I think her question is pointed in this particular moment in the conversation. Yeah, I, I think the matter of political correctness is really relevant to my question, which is about ethical decision-making and ethical mm -hmm. standards. And I think especially in professions that are human services oriented, which I, I would argue that a college is, is such a profession, higher education. Um, political correctness could very much be seen as tied to a pretty standard first ethical standard of do no harm. Mm -hmm. um, and so my question was to the pro, is the provost here? No. Okay, so my question was to the decision makers, so to the provost, to the curator. Um, uh, you know, that I believe that every profession has a set of ethical standards and guidelines that members are expected to follow. In my case, I comport myself in a manner consistent with the ethical standards of the American Psychological Association and its humanistic psychology division. Can you take us through your decision-making process um, that ultimately led to the removal of Mr. Towns' pieces and the ethical standards from your respective profession that may have informed that? From my perspective, as I said earlier, I left the 
final decision up to Stephen. I felt like it was his mm -hmm. to make. However, it's quite obvious, I think, that there was pressure. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily from administration as much as the staff member. Um, Monday morning, I called the events office and said, please take down the drape now. And I think they reached out to the president's office and the president said, no, we still need to figure out what's happening with it. So there was still a lot of tension. And I'll tell you that it was a few days of no sleeping in hell for me. Mm -hmm. And when Stephen finally got back to me with what he wanted to do to remove them and put up the blue tape, there was a moment of relief. And then that quickly was overshadowed by worse feelings than the first few days in that I felt, um, I, I wondered what I could have done more to protect Stephen and his work. I wonder if there was something that I could have done. Um, I definitely had a problem with uh, six works being removed because of one person's thoughts and feelings. I also teach at Towson University. I've taught for 11 years. I teach a class called Visual Concepts that teaches students to imbue work with content. And so I have the luxury and privilege of having a very expansive visual vocabulary and literacy, and I teach my students to talk about their experiences. I found that students by far make much stronger work when it relates to them. I teach them that they don't need to necessarily tell everyone else where it stemmed from, but because we all live lived experiences, people will get it if they're right on. Um, so it was very conflicting. And also, ironically, I received an email either this morning or yesterday from Micah, who is wondering about, they are trying to put into effect a policy mm -hmm. around exhibition mm -hmm. programming and design and wanted my feedback on it. And honestly, we don't have that here. As a curator, I know I have a particular focus um, to exhibit women and underserved communities. That's my personal thing, and, and it's part of the departments. I feel like it's been there for the long run. And we've had little things with nudity, mostly, of stuff <laughs> censored in the gallery, um, which I also found ironic coming from MICA, which they can get away with showing so much more because it's an art institution. But then it made me think, what is the difference between an art institution and a liberal arts college? And if we can't have these important discussions in a liberal arts college, where are they going to happen? And so it was... Like I said, relief at the onset, but then much more upset mm -hmm. over it. So I wondered if the um, employee may have been, and I don't know if this is an option nor if you're able to answer the question, but if that person um, may have been reassigned to another location. I understand that part of the objection was that she or he did not want to view those images day to day. So in terms of the university's um, options, would that have been, the, was that an option to assign this person to another location for the duration of the exhibition and then reassign this person um, you know, back to this post once the exhibition ended? This person is not regularly scheduled in this area. And more than likely may never have even seen the work. That day, the day of the incoming freshmen, public safety was set up in that area and they were welcoming and giving one cards to the students. 
other than that, I don't think they would have seen the work. Um, can I, so, yes. <laughs> so, however, the um, the removal of a person and the removal of an object mm -hmm. is problematic all the way around. Mm -hmm. It's just that kind of language. Mm -hmm. The fact is, is the work was here, and that person was here. So, what are the things that are in place mm -hmm. to facilitate a conversation? What, I mean, I think we can speculate, could have done this, this would have been different, et cetera, but the fact is we were in this situation, so what do we do? And yeah, right, if we're, if political correctness is, are those policies and et cetera that's in place to bring no offense to people, to make sure that folks who are um, historically disadvantaged are not further marginalized, yes. But then you have this other thing that happens that seems like it's the contra it contradicts all of that, which is um, how, do we, how do we encourage a kind of deep, rigorous conversation that, can, that will most likely get really sticky mm -hmm. and really ugly and still protect people without having to remove people and or objects. And I think that for me, um, I feel very sensitive about um, the removal of anyone or anything because it makes me think about, you know, I just, I'm always going back to, um, you know, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the man, the, the, the man who was a thing. And I just think like we, that just conceptually, it's hard to, for me to grasp uh, removing anyone or anything because it lumps people, people into objects that can be uh, extricated just um, just because it's not convenient and I think like these kinds of conversations aren't convenient they're really hard and what what is most effective and I'm saying this because I'm also an administrator as well as teaching at my institution is what's in place to encourage all of that stuff to happen at one time in the space that it is I mean could it have potentially been a real hot bed on that day, yes, it would have been really difficult, but it would have been worth it for Goucher as an institution to encourage a kind of conversation on the first day and let the new people that were there witness um, the way that Goucher as a community pulls together to figure something out. I mean, that is the kind of radical teaching an experience that can happen, right? Um, so on, off, like going off of that, I want to kind of hone back into Niasha's question with Laura, and can we really dig in a little bit deeper with some more peep about the ethics of showing work as a curator? Like what um, processes um, and plans did you have in place to, with the community, kind of unpack this work? Um, how could we have possibly, well, I mean, I don't know. I'll, I'll just leave it at that for the moment. I think that it's opened up the doors for 
continued conversation as people have been talking about. Um, so there also, part of the debate was why was the work shown here and not in the Silver Gallery, which is a private space where people make the choice themselves to go in. So that obviously brings up a good point as well. However, as a curator, I feel like it's important for the work to be out and seen. There are so many people, so in, again, the few weeks after all of this started to bubble up, I was sitting at these tables and I was working in here and it was really amazing to watch students um, come through. Like one uh, black student in particular walked all the way down, he got to that last painting with the lamb over the shoulders, he stopped, he stood there and he looked at it and then he slowly came back and he took his time walking around and he saw himself, he saw his history up on the walls where if we take it away and hide it, I would assume that he likely would never have seen the work because by and large, most Goucher students and people do not come through the Silver Art Gallery. So I feel like it, this is a very public space and I feel like it's also in that a really good opportunity to introduce the community to difficult topics, um, to start those conversations and those dialogues. Um, also more support from administration would be good. I am a one woman show that mounts 12 exhibitions by myself. I have three gallery assistants, if not five. So I, I work my hiney off. Part time too. I'm not part time. No, I mean the assistants. Yes. Assistants all do this is 10 hours a week. No, <laughs> 10 hours a week students that I'm training constantly. Um, also, as part of one of the most important parts of the gallery programming is that we produce color catalogs and trifolds in conjunction with every exhibition. So that is that contextual takeaway. Um, also, honestly, when, when I worked here, when I started, it was a part-time job. The Silver Gallery wasn't going yet. And when the Silver Gallery, I was told my job would go full-time, it did not happen. And so my part-time job then shifted to the Silver Art Gallery and I was not happy about it because I love this space because it is such a public place. There are thousands of people that come through this space every year to events in the Crowshar, events in the Merrick, people that rent out the space. So I love that people who may have never been exposed to art before have that opportunity to have this exposure and have these takeaways to hopefully broaden their understanding, to question. I think that art, one of the most potent things that art can do is make people question. And I feel like this exhibition and this space so it's unfortunate that Leslie's not here to speak for herself, yeah. but I really want to get to the deeper into the ethics of the decision to remove the work because of the public nature of the space. Like, what conversations happened? Why was, like, obviously the decision was made that it was in the best interest of the greater Goucher community for some reason to remove the work from the public space that Rosenberg Gallery is. Can you, in, can you shed some light on what that, what that was and what that is? There were very brief emails. It was, a lot of it was based on, between Leslie and I. Um, a lot of it was based on the employee who was 
threatening to quit if the works were not removed. The discussion that happened that morning um, was amazing. Um, validating the person, trying to offer that person context and more insight behind the work being removed. And no matter what was said, that person was adamant, even at the prospect of it being moved to somewhere else. And made sure that I was well aware that she, they would take they would not stop until it was removed. Can I say something? Because I, I, I feel a little uncomfortable with Laura being put so much on the spot here, and I'm really glad to hear from you, and I'm super glad to hear from you, Stephen. But, um, but it's kind of not an accident that we have the folks who are in precarious sure. job positions, who, right, who are, who are people of color, like that there's a sort of um, defensive posture, and the bodies that are holding that our, our bodies that are not being protected by the institution. Mm -hmm. and, and I realize that that might come across to some people as, um, uh, usually when I say things that I have much more to say, um, <laughs> like this in public spaces, and I hear later, oh, and somebody was being really critical of the administration and you know, uh, talking, talking bad about the administration. But I think, Niasha, your question is like so right on the money here about the, the specific decision-making practices because when we talk about history and you know how history gets handed down, it's not just in the photographs, it's in the mundane decision making. It's mm -hmm. in what we think is reasonable and it's in our standards of practice and it's nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Like that is how this stuff gets handed down. So it's when that little voice in the head is like, that doesn't seem right. That little reasonable voice might actually be the problem. Mm -hmm. So it is actually the decision making process here that is kind of the elephant in the room. And it's also not an accident that the bodies that are being asked to then defend it are, are in precarious positions. Yeah. I just, it, some of the comments that Niasha, your definition of political correctness, I've always had trouble, I'm an artist, I'm Pam Thompson, I'm in the art department, and I've always been strongly uh, opposed to any type of censorship, but I enjoyed your, your definition I, I've never heard the words political correctness in a positive light. Mm -hmm. It always is a negative. It always, it seems that if we could replace that with the definition you, you mentioned. Um, one thing about Goucher is it is both public and private. And having been involved with exhibitions here, um, there is that straddling of the situation. But one thing special about Goucher is that I feel like there is a promotion of um, the student uh, to educate students, and but also for everyone in the community, not just students and faculty, but staff also, to learn to get along with others. Um, a basic thing, um, and others that are not like you on all different levels, economic, racial, um, and I've become much more sensitive to those who work in this environment and to see things from their viewpoint mm -hmm. and much more cautious about being responsible for the work I put out as an artist and realizing that uh, even questioning an educational institution and myself, who am I to lecture a staff person on what something means mm -hmm. and how they need to be informed mm -hmm. if you know for all I know they could be busy two jobs family at home are they going to want to be participants 
in something we think that is good for them or is a good conversation. So I am very cautious about that now, and it is a complex later decision. And policies are difficult to get at those nuances of relationships. I do want to give so to ask the question again. The question, the opportunity for Leslie to speak on the question that yeah. Niasha has, because I think it's really hard for us to get deeper without hypothetically speaking about what may or may not have happened. Right. So I started out saying that political correctness that came up in the conversation that from a professional ethics standpoint in a human services profession often maps onto the first rule of do no harm. Um, and so I was asking if you could take us through the ethical decision-making process that ultimately led to Stephen's work being removed and maybe the ethical standards in your profession that informed that thinking process. I can do my best. I was not the decision-maker and I was not involved in many of the steps. So Laura, really, I mean, this was in many ways something that you were directly involved with much more than I was. So um, I think it's probably the ethics of art and art exhibits that come into play at least as much as the ethics of higher education or higher education administration. So I'm sorry I missed the early part of this, so I don't know what's already been said in terms of what happened in the um, decision-making early in the day. Um, having to do with um, the first decisions to um, uh, to to um, honor the um, wishes of the employee who felt offended by the artwork and to um, actually uh, cover those. So that those were decisions that were made with public safety um, with. Um, I think Brian Coker, Vice President of Student Affairs, may have been involved because public safety um, is part of his uh, realm. Um, but there was not an academic affairs component to what happened during that time. Um, I personally became involved um, in what happened when I found out about it later. The, um, the uh, images were still covered. Um, and I ran into Laura Burns and had a conversation about the way in which this functions, could function as um, an educational opportunity. I think I referred to it as a, a hot moment, something that we want to take advantage of as a community um, and as a community of, of educators. From there, I think conversations happened among the art faculty and with Laura about what needed to happen. And the next thing I knew, Stephen was making the decision to pull the artwork. Okay, so thank that's, you. That's helpful. That's, yeah. So that's when, I, when trying to put this together, I yeah. wanted to make sure I extended the hand to the specific public safety officer who felt a certain way about the work and she politely declined to be a part of the conversation. But had I known that Dave Hefford apparently was a actually a player in this conversation, I, okay. I, yeah, I would have also invited the invitation to them as well. 
I mean, one of the things that this does point to for me is the need to have an advisory board that's well um, understood as part of any um, exhibit space so that it's very clear who the decision makers are in any kind of um, moment when there is concern. I don't think we, and I'll take responsibility for this, I don't think we necessarily have all of the things in place that we should have in place to understand where responsibilities lie. And I, and I think this pointed that out. And in fact, it means that we're now having a conversation about this space as gallery space. And to what extent, no matter what the show is, this is an appropriate space as a gallery because of the way that it serves so many other interests. So I think the T for yeah, sort question. of, the, I mean, sort of the elephant in the room is that the only subjects that are controversial are is artwork about sexuality, is artwork with nudity, and artwork with black people. And, it's, and it sort of reinforces how this space, this country, does not necessarily still belong to us, because at points we still feel like we're on the auction block. And that, that, that uh, <coughs> I can't speak for that security guard, but they probably felt Here, like they I were on the auction block. And so, um, I mean, you can have all these call of conversations and these policies in place, but if you don't have a conversation with your uncle who's racist um, and correct him, like, none of this is going to change. You're going to keep having these conversations. It's not <coughs> conversations that you need to have with us. It's conversations that you need to have with your uncle, your son, your grandfather, your father. Who, have, who is inherently has these thoughts because this is his, you're, there is no way you can grow up in America and not have racist thoughts if you're white. Until you come to that realization, you will never understand what's going on here. When you come to that realization that I have racist thoughts because I grew up in America, I watch American television, I read American books, then none of this is, this is gonna keep happening over and over and over and over and over again. And when you start having that conversation with your uncle, your father, your husband, your son, then the institutions will change. And then when the institutions will change, then you won't have to worry about what we're doing right now. This isn't the first time this has happened at Goucher as well. Artwork, with there being um, issues around artwork that shows black, black bodies. Um, so if anyone wants to chime in with some of their anecdotes from the past, please feel free to do so. I don't have any anecdotes from the past. I, I, I remember the day. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember the panic of the day. Okay. I remember that the security guard is also the mother of a first year student. So mm -hmm. there are multiple layers to this thing. Mm -hmm. I remember families with young children walking through this space and not maybe being able to understand what they were seeing. I think about the fact that we have a race power perspective requirement at this institution that's a part of our new curriculum and that we want to introduce students to RPP, as I call it, in the first year. This would have been a wonderful opportunity 
for us to introduce our students to the RPP requirement walking in the door, yes, but it requires some intentionality and some planning on our part. We yes. own some of this. <laughs> Amen. Yes. We absolutely positively own some of this. And so had we done this differently, art can be a wonderful way to, to deal with that requirement because it evokes so many emotions in all of us. Just like you said, the young man saw himself, well that security guard saw herself too, yes. and they saw two different things. Yes. Yes. And so we were responding to the moment, and in our effort to do no harm, we did what we thought was best. Mm -hmm. I'll just stop. Yeah, amen. Yes, because for me, I don't, I want it to be known that I felt that the security guard, whatever response she had to that work, it was a valid response. Yeah. And it needed to be listened to and addressed. Mm -hmm. I felt the outcome of that response was not the best response from my position. Mm -hmm. I was sharing with Stephen that I have friends who grew up in the rural parts of Florida who when I had his exhibition at my gallery, and they are very supportive, uh, professional colleagues of mine, they could not allow themselves to visit the space because of their visceral response mm -hmm. to the imagery mm -hmm. of the lynchings, because they have actually witnessed them in their lifetime. So it wasn't like a second tier um, um, experience for them. It was a, a lived experience for them. But with that conversation, we talked about the history of this country, the ugly history of this country that we continue to try to whitewash, which really is troubling to me. That, we, again, we have a whitewashing of history with the white space with a blue tape around it. And whatever that security guard needed, I still think it was not fulfilled. It, it was a fear of perhaps her child becoming a victim of a lynching or being prosecutor persecuted because someone with ill intent would see that child, her child, as someone that could be victimized. So there's a lot, it's heavy, it's a heavy burden that we share, and especially on an academic, insti in an academic institution, which is really why it's so puzzling to me that this is the end result of that concern, of that parent, of that employee, was just a white space on the, on the wall. I'm sorry. I, so I'm an artist here. I'm an assistant professor of dance. And Stephen, you make, so one, I support your work. Actually, I'm buying that painting right there. Okay. <laughs> so I, first of all, I just want to say that. Secondly, I want to say that audiencing, you made a comment about what work to put in what space. And it's an important decision for all of us artists, right? I happen to take in the history of this space when I produced a show about black bodies on this stage, that if we're talking about what the institution and taking an institutionalized history in all of these decisions, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to, to use the words nigga or coon or cracker in the space here and allow for a two hour post performance discussion to happen when people are crying and people are just as offended and upset, but that is the nature of what art is. And it is the nature of art to reflect the times in which we live and then to be honest and diligent about having the conversation, right? And all of this stuff is murky, right? And I, I, I'm hearing us criticize 
the college, and maybe whatever we want to say about the decisions about at this particular point in time, but I step back and I take in the decision to allow an artist to have this in this space and another artist in that space and reading just mercy and race, power, and perspective. And when I take in all of that, how can I then be mad at the decisions that are being made to alleviate or push further the conversations that will allow us to have egalitarianism in college spaces, to be more liberal, right? And those things don't just happen in a vacuum, they happen in time. They happen continuously through pushing these boundaries. And you know, I'm not saying this because Leslie is here, I'm saying it because <laughs> emotionally, I, like, the, there is no separation between me the person and me the artist. When I'm deciding what classes I'm gonna teach in this space, I am constantly curating how to push my own content in this space, honoring the fact that all of these intersections are deeply woven and deeply complex, but they center themselves in who I am, right? And I just wanna close by saying like, Tell me, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't hear your name. Mercedes. Uh, Mercedes. Right Zoe. 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 Brought up an important point that I think we kind of missed, which is let's not shy away from having this conversation. Yeah. Let's not ostracize and alienate and remove or curate yeah. conversations, places, and spaces and, and bodies. But let's put in place, let's have a conversation about what policies can we put in place so that staff person who happened upon this image and was triggered what policies, resources can be put in place so that they can constantly deal with this stuff. Let's bring it to the front in order to alleviate it from that, that person, not alleviate the conversation with the body. Thank you. I want to I want to transition real quick. Do you have something to add real quick? I have a question. You have a question. Um, Is this continuing the conversation or going in a different direction? It's continuing. <laughs> I guess my question is for the administration. Um, mostly because this topic isn't something, like you said, that, that hasn't happened before, right? When we come to the space, we see the amount of professors that we have versus how many are here. Who, who is here and who gets to not be here? Who gets to have this conversation? The fact that this, uh, this, the art is not here, right? Where's Jose? That's one. Two, like, what what are you guys doing to have this conversation so that we don't have to keep having it? Why is it that Rob had to make this space for us? Why isn't it something that y'all did? You know. And in addition to that, are the paintings going back up or not? But like. So I guess I'm here as the administration. There's a point that's inherent in the question that you're making that I want to ask as a question back to you and back to all of us, and that's the question of who is the college. Because what I'm going to say is the college is not the administration. The college is all of us, and that we all have a responsibility to figure out how we move these conversations forward and what we do um, again and again. So for example, um, I don't, I mean, Jose had on a suit and tie this morning, so I think that means he's at a business meeting right now, <laughs> right? Um, I, I can't speak for him, but what I'm, I'm really, um, 
I guess the point I want to make is that um, Rob organized this event as part of the Common Hour events that we we all are supporting, that is, we want to make happen on this campus. So Laura had talked to me about the possibility of Stephen perhaps curating a show in our other gallery to continue this conversation. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen to continue the conversation. A lot of that has to do with the art faculty. Um, but um, I guess all I'm saying is I personally would encourage these conversations to continue both outside and inside the classroom um, as part of the, as Lindgren mentioned, the, the new RPP requirement and also as all of these other things that we do. So I think this is a great point to pivot to Graham's addition to the conversation and it's really continuing what um, Iquil was talking about, like what do we need to do? You want to go ahead and have something? Do you have one thing to add? Well, I just, I, I just wanted to piggyback on the question of intentionality and discussions about how this space is used. And, and I'm really, I just wanted to say, I think that it shouldn't necessarily be a foregone conclusion that this space is meant to just be kind of neutral, even though this is a great, it's a public space. But if we really had a conversation about how could we use this space in a way that was far more effective and that wasn't just window dressing, because part of it is, is that people rent it out. It's like, so there's questions of money too that mm -hmm. are underneath this, but maybe we really need to push against that and just like this and say this is an educational institution and how do we make the most out of that even if the conversations are super difficult. Because with intentionality, I think we can use this space far more effectively and I would agree that, yeah, it's just the, the planning wasn't, you know. Enough, yeah, and working, I can answer your question. I don't work here, but I work at another <laughs> institution. And so the thing is, is that the onus of doing diversity at an institution, any business, is always on the onus of the people of color. The work of people bringing, uh, talking about sexuality is always on the gay person. Like, the work is on you, and then you have to find the ally to have the conversation and make the change. Because no, even though I like have these conversations in my job, like people are kind of listening to me, but not really. But if I find the right person to speak for me, then like there are gradual changes. So like the administrators, they have to make money. Like we have to continually bring students in. We have to bring speakers in. Like art is not really a priority. Like. And so, like, the, the work is always going to be on you. If you're a person of color, if you have to advocate for yourself. If you're an artist, you have to advocate for yourself. The work is going to be on you. And that's going to happen after you leave here. And your whole life, sorry. I, I but do, it's going to happen I do want to like pivot that. to Graham's question, because we've we got to keep this shot on. Thanks, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just have one quick comment to add to this, and then I'll ask my question. So, um, Full disclosure, my partner is a museum educator, so I've talked to her quite a bit about how things run at other places. Um, and so at her place, her institution, they don't have security guards, they have guides that are in all of the galleries. And their position is specifically designed to go up and engage people that are in the gallery and ask them questions and help them kind of work through some of this. So, you know, I don't know what kind of resources this are here, but I mean, this is a very difficult space to kind of navigate if you're just kind of walking in at that other door at a very practical, logistical level. You may not know exactly what you're getting. So having someone there that 
is specifically designed to help you think through that. It, it's one way of having a conversation at a very individual level right when it happens, so right when you come in. So, um, so that's just one thing to throw to the mix, I guess, about the space. Um, I've been thinking about, because uh, I brought my class here, I've, I've walked through a bunch of times, and the more I look at the work, I realize, and this is partly from hearing Stephen talk about it too, is that this work is very much asking us to bear witness to history, um, specifically this history of forced migration um, and its legacies, its ongoing uh, vestiges. Um, but in sort of, as this conversation is very clearly evidencing, um, that, that sort of process is pretty fraught. So at a very practical level, it's, it's actually hard to bear witness when we don't have images to look at or we have them in a different form in this notebook. Um, but even at a different level, I've been thinking over the times I've come here um, that there's even another challenge, and it is that we, as different viewers, see drastically different things when we encounter these images, specifically images of epistemic anti-black violence. Um, and so, you know, I'm just going based on some of my observations of, of, of hearing people in the space. And, for example, in those paintings that have been removed, some people have said, well, maybe those aren't nooses, or maybe those could be symbols of protection, or... Um, they make comments that lead me to think that they don't actually see the nooses. They're not actually seeing that history. So it's made me wonder, how do we bear witness? How do we sort of, uh, as a collective, as a group, um, come to some understanding of what the social facts of slavery uh, were and what are their, their vestiges? I'm, we've probably already heard some answers already, but... Um, uh, I guess that's the thing I've been thinking about, at a philosophical level. How do we bear witness when we see so drastically different things. I guess it's a question for all of us. So. This is very loaded. Um, I teach sculpture here, and I have, so it's not always just the artists that are on campus, it's also my students. Alan. Um, and what are they, so a couple of, in, in a couple of instances, three that I can think of, um, my students' work has been censored by um, there is Title IX on campus, which the role of Title IX is theoretically to protect um, people from discrimination. But I've had work not allowed on campus because there was fear that the work would, um, would threaten other students. So this is a black student who wants to hang a white body um, from a tree in the woods. Very, very loaded. Completely. So, um, you know, that, that was a negotiation, but before I could even finish sending the email practically <laughs> that said, because I always send to security and I send to um, FMS to just let them know what's going to be on campus so that they can guard the work, and they're usually really great at guarding the work. But before I could practically, <laughs> before the ink was even dry, um, I, Title IX as a committee had met. Um, and the decision had been made that this, this work could not go up. That it was too dangerous, that it was too... And so, um, so that was, a, I mean, I had scheduled a meeting and asked if I could have a conversation about the, the work, but the decision had already been made when I got to that meeting. Um, the committee had met and made that decision. They were basically, the meeting was to inform me that this could not happen. Um, and I, I, you know, I get that. It, it's a totally loaded piece. It is a very, very heavy, controversial piece for a student to um, to be making and, and easily misunderstood 
um, this, this is a white body that he wants to hang from a tree in the woods. And so, so there's that. Uh, there's Title IX that is to protect um, people from discrimination. And in that instance, it was more of something that was used to discriminate against, in a way. Understandable on many levels. Um, I also had um, another piece that was completely misunderstood. Um, and it was a faculty member who objected to the piece, misunderstanding what it was about. That was me. Um, female body. <laughs> I said, that um, was me. I know, I didn't <laughs> 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 A little awkward, but. <laughs> <laughs> so so the piece was done by yeah. a student, um, and it was a celebration in her mind of her leaving the college um, uh, as a graduate and all of the experiences that she had had that were fundamental to her growth. And so the piece was a body. It was made out of dirt and it was at the base of a tree. Um, the misunderstanding was that it was a, a sculpture about rape and that it was about black, about blackness. And so the piece- No, not rape. I misunderstood because it looked like the body was, it was made of dirt so it looked brown with big buttocks and it was chained to the tree and it was, it looked partially dismembered. But you were saying the student was saying it wasn't dismembered, it was coming out of the dirt, right. but it looked dismembered. Right. Yes. Maybe a skill level is at play there. <laughs> 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 so, and, and one more thing, however, it was the day of the kente. That's right. Um, and it was like in front of where the kente so was my, So in my department, yeah, my chair made a decision without consulting me to pull the piece. The um, FMS came and had taken the piece away before I even knew that this was happening. So they're really, so that's two. Um, the third thing for me is having my own work censored um, at another institution because the piece was about death. Um, and I was using dirt. Um, I was using very, very low light, um, and I had um, boxes that were big enough, um, seven feet long, three feet wide, and I had a series of them that had dirt in them. The perception was that this piece was about death, and it was to some extent. It was very sad and very dark, um, and the institution felt, because it was, it was a school, um, and, and grades one through 12. Um, so the decision was that this was too much for the students to handle. Um, and, and I was called in the day the show opened, they were gonna close it. Um, and do, you, so, do you have like a question to pose? Because we're getting to the point where people are gonna so, start having to get out of here. Long story short, that was a negotiation with the administration to figure out how do we take care of the students? Um, how do we take care of me as an artist, um, what you know, what's okay. Um, so in an educational institution, it's very, very different than a gallery. I personally really know how much Laura went through, how difficult it was for her to be negotiating this whole thing between Stephen, who I I love you, <laughs> and, I really love um, and I and I just you know I think that was a really difficult negotiation between the employee between um, the administration in the form of the security, um, head of security, all of those kinds of issues, I think. Um, 
I just want to credit you for watching you kind of try to figure that out, <coughs> knowing Stephen, not knowing that you had just this person who is very wonderful on the other end of that conversation. So, thank sorry you, to talk thank to you. Long. I want to see if we can get back to bearing witness. Mm -hmm. um, so, Zoe. Well, I just, if you don't mind, I hate that I have to go. I have to okay. teach I just want to respond to um, Graham's, Graham's question yes. about bearing witness. Yeah. And I, I, that's, that was that's really important. Thank you. I think, um, I think that's really important to me. Uh, but, I, but it's underlying this entire conversation. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, how do we bear witness? We acknowledge what someone has done or what someone says. We make space for it and mm -hmm. we report it, right? Um, we uh, insert it and keep reinserting it, and then we give a context for it. Mm -hmm. And all of that stuff can happen before and during. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's how, that's the kind of responsible way to bear witness to things, right? Yeah. To events. And in, on that last point about giving context or framing, or even in this third one, which is inserting it, it means that it has to occur in spaces like this. We can't just have these kinds of images or even conversations only in spaces that are segregated, right? Like a designated gallery space. They have to be in spaces like this where people go in and out because as the uh, professor, the dance professor at the other end said is there are these intersectional ways, right? We inter intersectionality is at the core of this, right? So why would we separate a conversation about race with in only spaces that are only for race. We have to... You're only going to get people that want to have people, that conversation. Right? <laughs> and so why do we have these... Why can't we have this conversation about race and history and violence and responsibility and, and also about whiteness in spaces like this where they're filled with people that have these layered identities? So, yeah. I, I really like that question. Thanks. And then Molly. Yeah. So as we're sitting here, um, Zoe whispers in my ear, tell them about your programming. <laughs> so um, with each exhibition that we hold um, in, the ex in my gallery, we have a series of programming that takes place. And often invited to participate are scholars so that we dig into whatever the historical, cultural, and social context of the exhibition is. And as a educational institution, perhaps that is one way as you develop your advisory committee in which um, this can be dealt with. And, um, and so that, again, going back to the artist as storyteller, speaking to narrative, history, and concerns, that there can be a dialogue. And then there's a policy in place that supports the ability for that freedom of expression to take place. And um, so, you know, and also to separate from what's just like gratuitous mm -hmm. violence just for the purpose of mm -hmm. versus that which the artist wants to express mm -hmm. as long as they can put it in a historical context, mm -hmm. as long as they can show how it's culturally relevant, then it just isn't art for art's sake, but it, it can prove itself in terms of being able to be important and relevant. And I think that, you know, that is what can be the kernel that will help to separate those who just want to be here for shock and awe versus those that have really something substantive and important to share, no matter how controversial it may appear. 
I mean, and I'm talking black, white, we, we need to understand and listen to and get into the minds of those that are trying to express something, even when it causes discomfort. Otherwise, we're going to become these, this bland society that walks around believing that it's kumbaya, we're all wonderful and existing and coexisting in a way that's truly false. So, you know, sometimes we have to just do the hard work and commit to it mm -hmm. so that, that those important conversations are able to take place. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ortiz. Molly and then Drea, and then I'm gonna move to Ailish. You can stay past me for the sake of time. No, like, what? No, I don't wanna be redundant. I feel like Zoe kind of brought okay. away a lot of what I was gonna say, and I wanna just simply leave space for that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Drea? Hi, uh, I'm Drea. I am a faculty in women and gender studies in the Center for Reactions and Justice. I just wanted to uh, piggyback a little bit off of bearing witness, um, Graham and Hillary were talking about. You know, I, I think something that, not something I'm just realizing, but definitely something I'm noticing more in these months that I've been here, that it's, you know, it's not just about bearing witness to this artwork, but also in terms of bearing witness to this land and what this land was and who it happens mm -hmm. this land now yes. and how mm -hmm. that also impacts the communities here mm -hmm. and how that impacts the person that saw this painting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not, all, and I think Alam said this at, the, um, mm -hmm. at your art show about how it's yeah. not all just about the painting, but also the history yeah. that comes with this institution. And so I think conversations like this in the theme of community and the spirit of community that we're focusing on this year, I think conversations like this are very necessary, and not just about this art, but about histories of these controlling images and these troubling images. There's a reason that Niyasa was offended by that artwork, mm -hmm. and we can't just look at it as she couldn't see you know, what the student was creating, but what are the troublesome and complex histories that she's actually relating to, and how do those histories relate to this institution that relates to the artwork produced by students, produced by people that come in, and how do we talk about that? before we take things down? Yes. Or how do we talk yeah, about you. that in moments of injury as opposed to shying away from them? Because we can't create a salve for injury by backing away from it. Like we have to have these conversations. And again, who's gonna be on the panel, right? Who's gonna lead the conversations and who's gonna be the guide and who are the people that are always doing the work and then how do we shift that? Right? Because you, you make a great point. It's true. We do this work for the rest of our lives, and I'm about to go do this work right now. <laughs> but it's real. And part of doing that work, you know, when I talk to my class and realize that they actually don't necessarily have a context for controlling images like Mammy, like Jezebel, like recognizing how uh, black folks have been viewed as over-sexualized and aggressive beings. So no, that, that's the context in some ways for understanding this work. And also to understand that just because the, the uh, portraits of lynching are gone doesn't mean that there isn't troubling images happening on this wall. It's easy for us to focus on the butterflies, but we're not looking at the image of the brooks that's like right behind these bodies or these slave ships. Like they are actually not that far removed from where we are right now. And so I think it would behoove us to have more conversations like this that are not necessarily organized by the people that are on the panel, but that come from more folks. Um, administration, other faculty, what have you, so that our students and our staff 
and faculty can see that this work is happening between all of us, not just the same folks, not just the go-to folks. You know what I'm saying? Can I just say one last thing? Thank you all for coming here. You didn't have to be here today. You spent your one and a half, two hours with us, um, and you didn't have to tackle this on. So thank you all for coming here. I wanted um, to give Ailish a chance to chime in real quick okay. before we disperse. Okay. So, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question really is, how do we greet the stranger? And um, going back to what Graham had said about his partner, how they, instead of having security officers, they have guides. And likewise, how do, we, how do we make decisions from courage and then check it against what we think is reason, instead of making it from reason and then maybe taking a little bit of courage if it kind of suits what reason we've decided on? Mm. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking about, and I know this word is loaded politically, but insurgent thought and insurgent insurgent ideas, how do we greet those in any given space? How do we, when that danger signal comes up, how do we discern what is it actually a danger to? It could be a danger to something that needs to get dismantled. Because this usual suspects thing, the folks that are always having the conversation, are kept that way by structures, by ways of thinking and ways of behaving. Like, why is it that there are certain faculty members who have bodies that look like mine that are here despite the fact that they have repeatedly done things that are harmful, that, do, that, that clearly violate the do not harm thing. Why? Because of tenure, this kind of idea, of this reasonable idea and whatnot. We can't be unreasonable enough to say it's not okay for people to be harmed again and again. We need to come up with some unreasonable idea coming from courage and then maybe change the way we think about reason. So that's my question is how do we, how do we greet the stranger differently? than we do right now? And how do we have more people greeting the stranger differently? To do exactly what you were talking about, Drea. Move it out so there's multiple centers of folks saying, let's get into this together. How do we not be uh, spectators, but all be uh, participants? Kind of what you were trying to get at, too. It speaks a lot to the kind of community that we have and want to have, the kind of community that we think we have, but maybe we don't have. <laughs> but we may also be at time too, so there yeah. might yeah. be big questions. Is there any final thoughts that people want to add before we tie bones? I want to make sure, Rob, that you get thanked for yes. I just want to let folks know that what I do, everyone else can do as well. It doesn't take, it really doesn't take that much energy. You just got to say it needs to be done, I'm going to do it. Um, so it's not really about me, it's about what the community needs. So hopefully we all can come together and fill those needs together. Thank you. Thank you.